We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and my witness today on The Meaningful Life is Charlotte Fielder, who's head of volunteering, fostering, and communities at Battersea Dogs and Cats Home. I invited her onto the program for two reasons. I guess she might be a kindred spirit. Firstly, we both love dogs. In fact, mine has appeared in this podcast unplanned a couple of times before, and I suspect that dogs can be an ingredient for making our lives meaningful. Equally important, she's passionate about volunteering, and I know that can be very meaningful. Now, when I did my research, I discovered all sorts of other important things that made me doubly look forward to our conversation. She started her career as a law enforcement officer for the Home Office, the National Criminal Intelligence Services, and other agencies in the government. She's also represented the UK at international child protection conferences. A big career change is always interesting, and I suspect that there is something to be learned from these moments too. Incredibly enough, when you look at her career, she left school at just 16, following some terrible bullying, which led to a suicide attempt. However, she's used these dark times to help others, and I have to say I find that incredibly inspiring. So how would you like to start, Charlotte? Shall we do this chronologically, going right back to being 16, or shall we start with your work today? Which do you think would be the best way of approaching this? I think we should be chronological, but I'll be very precise in that chronology. Okay, so what led to the bullying when you were young? I was born with a missing left hand and a shortened forearm, and my parents moved house halfway through my secondary school years, which meant that I'd left behind that cohort of friends that you have probably started primary school with and gone all the way through your secondary school years with. And I found it really difficult to establish new friendship groups. And I think the way of life is that the child in the school with a disability or the person with red hair sometimes or the person from a minority ethnic background it's the world that we still live in and I guess you know the saying years ago was that you were picked upon I remember that phrase it was and it was there was the answer was that sometimes people would say well just say to them you know sticks and stones may break my bones but names will never hurt me that was the sort of philosophy of the time but it was very difficult because when you are 15 and you're very concerned about your yeah your body image you're growing up you want to form relationships looking back on it I realize now it just wore me down and I feel also probably a sense of shame sometimes but also I own it it did it happened to me and I was very low and although I regret you know taking an overdose and the and what happened afterwards I realized it did inform me because I I did leave school when I was 16 and I got a job working for customs and excise as was then back in the day in 1980 and suddenly my life was transformed because I was no longer with with kids and teenagers I was amongst adults and that was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me because I was able to 
leave a lot of that behind me and have fun. And there were older but young people working there. So I took a different view of it. And then there was something that happened to me that really did leave an impression upon me. And I went to, uh, nowadays you call them nightclubs, discos, we called them back then. (laughs) I remember uh, that too. I think we might be about the same age. Probably, yeah. Born in the 60s, I guess. No, I was born in 1959. Ah, okay. So um, there's only a few years between us, though. And I met this guy and it was all going really well. And he was like, oh, do you want to go for a drink? I'll come and pick you up and we'll go out and we'll have something to eat. And he was super keen. And I thought he was quite good as well. And we arranged to meet and he came and picked me up a couple of days later. And we went to a pub and I put my my uh, my clutch bags with a thing back then and put my bag on the bar. And he noticed my missing hand and the colour almost drained from his face. And he looked at it and said, oh, well, um, I've just remembered there's somewhere else that uh, I've got to be. I've got to go somewhere. Really, st- And he just drove me home and almost, you know, he sort of uh, barely stopped the car in his attempt to get me you know, out. And I did dwell on that for a, quite a while. But then I realized that actually I should treat that as a bit of a lesson because he hadn't noticed that I'd got a missing hand in this disco. He noticed it on the first day and I really needed to make it sort of more clear I'm not put my hand or my, my, my stump in my pocket and be more upfront with it and so I decided really that was a bit like a filter to get rid of some of the sort of people who only interested in you for having two hands two feet I could actually make it work to my advantage and probably meet more genuine and authentic people How do you think that lesson of actually presenting yourself in all your reality has actually fed into the rest of your life? Because that sounds like a really useful lesson very early. I mean, I don't feel like I've ever been a uh, a particularly vain person. You know, I quite happily not wear makeup for days and then put some on. But what it did for me is it made me realise that there are some people who, who need things to be perfect and their partners to be perfect, or their car gets a scratch, they want to sell it. You know, that's very vested in the sort of things being right. And then there are other people who just accept things the way they are. And one of my favourite sayings, and I inherited this from my grandma, but you know, if there's a scratch or there's a dink on something, and somebody's going, yeah, but look at this, it's my new phone, it's got this. And I hear myself saying it, my grandma used to say, but a blind man would be pleased to see it. You know, and that's, it's about accepting life as it is. And if you are constantly in search of perfection or things being just the way they are, you actually miss out on so much. And actually the the flaws in the world and seeing them and recognizing them and accepting them as part of life, once you let go of the need for perfection, your life actually just becomes a lot happier. So I did see it as um, as a gift. And I think there's a book, The Gift of Imperfection by Brenny Brown. You know, it's a, it's a great way to live your life and let go of trying to be perfect or right. And I think that anybody who's looking for perfection is going to be disappointed in life because actually there is no such thing as perfection. I don't think the perfect life is possible. And I think if you're after the perfect life, you're going to have the miserable life, to be perfectly honest. I don't know what you think. 
I think so. There's a couple of things where I agree with you on that. The first thing is that when I started work, I put my heart and soul into being the best customs officer I could be because I didn't want anybody to think that somebody with a missing hand wouldn't be able to find drugs and and other prohibited items. And I wanted to be successful. And I was, I did well. And I was very immersed in my working life. And when I got to 40, I had a a sort of a, a little bit of a moment, really, because I suddenly got very interested in, you know, how many other people are like me with a missing hand? And how does that work? And I At that point, we had the internet and I did some research and I found this charity called Reach that supports children with upper limb difference. And I phoned the head office and I had a really fantastic chat with their national coordinator. Long story short, she invited me to go and talk at their conference, which I did. And I just thought, I've got all of these parents sitting in front of me, all worried about what's going to happen to their kid. Will their child be bullied? Will anybody fancy their children? What's their life? Are they going to get the type of job they want? So I owe it to these set of parents to really just hit them with some of some of my stuff. And it went down really well. And as a result of that, I was asked to share more of my experiences And what I did was I then spoke to the charity again and I I put a a questionnaire, a survey out, and it was an absolute goldmine of information from new parents about what it was like. And then as their children were older, and I I realised that we could share this and every time there's somebody with a new baby would really get something from it. So I, I wrote a book which was called Shared Experiences and In interviewing one of the mums, her marriage had split up because her husband could not cope with the fact that he'd had a child with a missing hand. And he was repulsed by it. And and now, I mean, the lovely thing is that she went on to marry a diamond of a person and her son sees the man who brought him up as his dad, not his biological dad. And that, to me, was another thing about perfection is that you know, wanting perfection so much in your child that you couldn't live with a child who'd been born with something missing. And it got me thinking about, well, on that level, how do you then get to a point where if your child got to 10 years old and had a terrible accident and lost a foot, would you then think, I don't want this child anymore? It's uh, Human behaviour is fascinating and human reactions. I, I am endlessly fascinated by how people are. And so meeting these parents, did it change you in any way? It was a really humbling experience because at the time, my job was working within HM Revenue and Customs within their intelligence department. It sounds clandestine, but it wasn't. I was, you know, I was was a jobbing field intelligence officer. And my my skills were around being able to analyse data and also to draw a lot of qualitative stuff out as well. And so I was able to ask very intimate, very personal questions of people I didn't really know. And I was humbled because they trusted me with things. And then I, I shared all of what I wanted to publish in the book with them just to make sure it was okay. And that I, you know, they, they didn't have any second thoughts about saying it. And I, I was appalled by what happened to some of these parents. Things like they took their little baby home from hospital and they went round the next day with the baby in the little carrier to meet the grandparents and they sat round the table and the, the grandfather leaned forward 
and said, oh, if you'd have known about this, would you have had the pregnancy terminated? And, you know, and what a thing to say. And really it is saying, you're not good enough. You know, however you cut that. And that's how it felt to the parents. So I, I did feel that, yes, I'd been trusted because I'd been working in the home office or in customs and in the home office for a long time. I spent a lot of time as a volunteer fundraiser for Reach. I really got into it and I wanted to raise as much money as I could so that the charity could carry on sending kids on what they call the Reach Activity Week uh, where they meet children of their own age and it was life-changing because children were seeing other people who were missing hands or missing arms saying, oh, that's what mine stump is like. And it was so liberating. So I got into that and then I got to a point where I was getting near to 50 and I thought... As much as working in government departments had been really good for me and challenging and kind to me, it provided me with lots of opportunities, I thought I don't want to spend the last 10 years of my working life in this law enforcement environment and I wanted to go and work in the charity sector and take my experiences because one thing that the government departments do is training is first class and I'd been managing people for many years is then that's a very portable skill. Take that outside and see if I can take it into a charity. And is it quite difficult to leave a secure job? You know, the government is one of the best employers. They're going to give you a good pension fund. You're going to be safe for the rest of your life. Charities are a little bit more precarious. Was it difficult leaving? It was really difficult. And quite a few of my colleagues told me I was mad. Exactly what you're saying is that people just felt that I either had a sort of a, a Mother Teresa complex or that I hadn't really understood that the last quarter of my pension wasn't going to be paid in by by government. But you know, there is something around following your star. And also the pursuit of money does not bring happiness. So to work in an environment where the last 10 years you would have felt well I'm doing this just to build my pension up I could have died but I needed to be fulfilled and I, actually I, I tell people about sometimes I tell people the pay cut that I took to <laughs> go and work for a charity and then so let's have a percentage then well 20 percent 30 percent oh you know I'm 50%. so bad on percentages it well it was maybe a 30 percent pay cut Wow. Slight, maybe slightly. It was massive anyway. Yes. And people were, because I, you know, I was a manager and, and I'd worked there a long time and charities pay really appalling <laughs> salaries. You know, they do. They know people do it for the love. So I went and worked as a volunteer services manager for a hospice and I learned so much there about volunteering and managing volunteers and setting up volunteering programs. And then I saw this job come up for the head of volunteering and fostering at Battersea. I honestly had one of those sort of eureka moments. And I thought, gosh, there's going to be other people who are already existing heads of and am I punching above my weight? And, but I just you know, put a lot of effort into my supporting statement. And then I got called for interview. And then I got called back for a second and a third interview. It took months. But you know, the day I walked through the gates at Battersea, which was some six months later, actually, I had the feeling of coming home and Gosh. just thought, this is where I want to be. 
And I think that's really important because when we actually listen to ourselves, we're told an awful lot from inside about what is right for us, but we don't listen to that. So you listen to say, this has been great for me, but that was the first half of my life. The second half of my life, I want to do something different. And you were able to recognize when you walk through that door that it was something that was right for you. So that's really brilliant. What do you think was so right for you? Well, I think if you are going to work for a charity, it really helps if you love the cause. And I have grown up with dogs. I love dogs. I love cats. We've had rescue dogs from Battersea. So I'm like a perfect fit. I'm not saying that if you've not had bowel cancer, that you couldn't go and work at the bowel cancer charity and make a fantastic contribution because that would be like a ridiculous thing. But I do think if you are absolutely crazy about the cause, then there's a bit of value added there. So I felt and feel now really passionate about rehoming and rescue and giving animals a second chance. And that ties in with also feeling very passionate about the power of volunteering and what people can do when they're not doing it for money. They're coming in because they also care. And we have foster carers at Battersea and they're looking after animals 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, they're looking after those dogs and cats on Christmas Day and Boxing Day. They're having to monitor who comes in their house. It's such an act of love. And that's what, what volunteering and fostering is. So fostering is you take the dogs for a while rather than take them to be their new owner. Is that correct? That's right. So with an animal who is on foster, it would be around maybe a medical need or a behavioural need or, or a little bit stressed and it's recognised that that animal would do better in a home, Battersea's home. Yes, those people have those animals, and some of them are, are staff foster carers, and some are external foster carers. But the point is, they've got you know all of the responsibility. Also, knowing that at one point they have to give that animal up. So mm. I have the greatest admiration, but also. There's one thing that I have to tell you because I belong to something called the Failed Foster Carers Club. Okay, so tell me what the Failed Foster Carers Club is. That's when you foster an animal, as I did, because I wanted to really understand what it was like for foster carers, the, the challenges of it. And then after three days, I was so in love with the little dog that I fostered. There was no way that I could ever give him up. So I actually think I was really bad as the actual head of the fostering department, but also very human. So you went from the foster to the adopter, did you? <laughs> yeah, in three weeks. And it was, I, it was uh, you know, some people say the best mistake you've ever made, that, that type of thing. It was such a good thing. And also really good because my husband had never had a dog. And my husband and I always talk about unifying projects oh, because right. they, I think they make relationships work really well. So tell me, what's a unifying project? So it's when you both buy into something with equal amount of positivity, but often you come into it from a very different angle. And one of them, one of you may be less keen or you might, but you, you both actually commit to it. That's where the positivity is. So give me some other examples from your relationship beyond having a dog together. Oh, okay. So I had wanted to go to Cuba for years. My husband was like, oh, I just don't, I'm not fancying it. I'm not feeling it. But he did recognise that, you know, I wanted to go to Cuba. So then once he'd said, okay, we'll go, 
the project was doing the absolute amount of research. How many days were we going to spend in Havana? Where were we going to go next? What were we going to see? Where are you going to hear some of that beautiful Cuban music? Yeah, all of that. And then, you know, we have a daughter who is now nearly 25, love of our life. But her upbringing was a unifying project. None of us would make a decision about something that she was going to do if the other person was uncomfortable about it or we would just talk about and and I used to think well I did used to think everybody did it but you find out that they don't and somebody would say oh you know my husband's gone off on one because I've you know agreed that could go and do an activity or I've bought a motorbike and my wife doesn't know that's a favorite people come to see me about that's exactly it isn't it or say for example your daughter coming home and saying a boy has asked me to go out to the cinema with him and then just saying oh yeah that's fine and then not not asking it's not like you're asking permission but not not saying to your daughter well actually let me talk to daddy about this let's make sure we're both comfortable with it equally if I wasn't there to be consulted about something so your parenting decisions are joint and not just one okay so let's go back to having your dog what's the name of the dog he's called Max and he's well he's 11 now he's a Yorkshire Terrier and he's got his little issues. So what issues did he arrive with? He arrived with bad skin. He had conjunctivitis. He had a dodgy tummy. He's now got a heart condition. He, you know, he has his little medical problems. So he's not perfect. He wasn't perfect when he arrived. He had lots of skin issues. He had got real character. And he enables us to do things like commit to going out for a walk every day, no matter what the weather is. And when we have our walks around the park, I think that's probably when my husband and I have our best chats, real free-flowing. You always walk the dog together? We try to, yeah. There has to be a real reason why we don't, because then that's a unifying thing to do. And it's, it's really nice to walk along the beach or if you're inland, you're walking by the river or, yeah, to make it the whole experience really of having a dog in your life is so that your dog is in your life, not that you're sort of looking for, this is me speaking, we look for dog-friendly pubs and restaurants and I phoned up a hardware store on Sunday and said, uh, are you dog-friendly? Because I need, we needed to go and buy a few things there. Yeah, I want to be with my dog. One of the most wonderful things about moving to Berlin was that effectively all restaurants welcome dogs inside. I mean, I think the dog's only been refused in one restaurant in almost three years. It is the most wonderful situation. I mean, I have been thrown out of bars because it's a busy evening and they don't want the dog in there, but that is only one occasion. It is extraordinary that the attitude is far more, yeah, bring your dog in. I think the English are actually a little bit... Conservative about having dogs in pubs and restaurants. But I agree with you, it's often quite difficult to find somewhere to eat if you've got the dog and you don't want to leave the dog in the car because, you know, it's the summer or something like that. It's really difficult to organise all that. So um, move to Berlin and your dog will be able to come into restaurants. <laughs> the German people are more enlightened about dog ownership, I guess. That's a lovely example of yours, Andrew, and it does resonate with me. So why do you think the bond between dogs and humans is so important? Because I really feel this deep down inside, so I'd like to hear from you. 
Well, I, I'm just going to talk from my own point of view because there are experts out there who've written books about the human-animal bond. So I'm not talking on behalf of Battersea. Or my, I'm just talking about it from, from where I am. I see, I have seen at first hand the joy that dogs bring humans. Once a month, Battersea volunteers go and visit Chelsea pensioners. And we were doing up until covid and as soon as COVID has gone, then we will resume this. And within the Royal Hospital Chelsea, there are no dogs. Like people don't have a dog in their room. And a lot of former service men and women have had dogs during their lives or during their career. And the expressions on their faces, the you know, dogs jumping up on beds and they're cuddling the dogs. And so you do see the good it does people, how uplifting it is. For me, there is a Wow, this is this is something our volunteers are doing, and they're making such a difference to the lives of these pensioners. But then, outside of work and in my private life, I look at my eighty-nine-year-old dad and the relationship he has with his dog. And my dad takes his dog out for a walk every day. Now, if my dad didn't have the dog, he wouldn't be going out for a walk every day. And he wouldn't be chatting to people he meets on his trip around the park. So he would be losing some of that social connection. So I I actually think dog ownership probably helps people guard against dementia. And certainly the case for dog ownership as as a... Social cohesion. Yeah, attacking loneliness, social isolation. When you have a when you have a dog, everybody talks to you. And you can talk to everybody as well. If if you just talk to people on the street on your own, you're a weirdo. If you talk to somebody and you've got a dog beside you, you're friendly. It's strange, but that's it. It, it is it. So dogs bring enormous social benefit to people's lives, enabling them to meet other humans. I don't know the percentage, and you would probably know this, but the percentage of people who are now living on their own, I think is greater than it's ever been before. It's the number one type of household now is one person living on their own. That's There are more of them than there are families or couples or people sharing. So some people are living on their own through choice because they didn't want to get married or have a life partner, and that is their life choice. But there are people who are widowed and breathed and lost their significant other. Or I always think there's a big sadness around people who always would have liked to have had a life partner, but it never happened to them. And I I see it. I know of single men and single women. They would have really loved to have met the person. It didn't work out. And that's not to say that they don't have friendship groups and they don't have really interesting or fulfilled lives but that part of their life that's a sort of segment of their life it just didn't happen for them and they're not going around feeling sorry for themselves or shouting from it's just a fact but what they have is having a dog or a cat in their life fills that part of that gap it's opening the front door and those little dog or that cat runs up to say hello and then you're in there and how are you top back top of their head and stroking them and giving them their food and then if it's a dog you're taking them out for a walk and it's it's that company and I just think there is a big thing about the unconditional love you get from your dog or cat. They don't judge you. They don't care what you're wearing. They don't care if you've not washed your hair or your breath was smelly or what. I don't know. They don't care. They absolutely just 
The only thing they want from you is the gift of your company and a meal. And I became a dog owner after my partner died and dogs need a job. And actually what I needed the most, it took me a while to find this out, was companionship, something to structure my life around because I worked for myself from home and I had no structure in my life at all. And dogs need walking three times a day. They need to be fed. And suddenly there's a sort of structure. You're not going somewhere on your own, which is actually quite difficult if you've always gone with somebody else. You're going with the dog and it sort of breaks down the barriers. And I'm still a, a dog owner and I've been a dog owner now for 20 years. It means it's just extraordinary how the time goes. And you sort of think, how could I have not been a dog owner? But my mother always said we couldn't have a dog as a child because she'd end up walking it. And both my sister and I both having dogs. Her children, I think, have got something like four dogs between them. So we are an incredibly doggy family. And I think dogs allow you to communicate within the family. It's a sort of a safe subject to talk about. And then you can move from the dogs onto more serious topics as well. Do you find that in your yeah, family? The dogs I'm, are a I'm, way of talking and communicating. I'm not in my head with real... I feel like gusto here. I really underline what you say because I have elderly parents and I phone them quite often. You know, I say, how are you? What you've been doing? And I say, how Snoopy? And what's he been doing? And my mum will regale me with a story about taking him into TK Maxx and she picks up a squeaky toy and then he runs to the counter with it because he's known in that branch of TK Maxx. And then my mum will say, how's Max? And I'll say, oh, well, this morning we took him for a walk and this happened and we met this dog. Or I'm, um, you know, all just a little tiny. To other people, it would be so boring, I think, just hearing us talk about our dogs. But our Christmases, we've had the same type of thing. My my sister had her dog and my mum. My, my dog's scratching at the door to get in now. I hope that's not going to destroy your podcast we can't can't hear that okay but suddenly i could you know my i'm in there in my sort of dog mum role here so it's lovely i think it's very difficult there are people who just don't like dogs and it just must bore the pants off them when they just don't get it so i realize that when i'm waxing lyrical about dog ownership that there are always those who say, oh, I prefer cats or I just don't like any animals or I have an allergy or it's just not for me. But for those who are open to it and for people who are, well, you know, I just don't know if a dog would work for me. I think if you're having those thoughts about I'd quite like a dog, you're actually nine tenths of the way there. And what I would say, because this is how I cross the threshold, is speak to a friend who's got a dog because they go away on holiday. They are going away for the weekend and they're going to a posh hotel that won't allow dogs in. Boo, hiss. And they would be very happy for you to have the dog for the weekend or a week. That's how I started off. I went round to a friend's house. The dog was all over me. They said, oh, you should have him. Joke, joke, joke. And I said, well, yeah, I'll look after him when you go away on holiday next time. So I had the dog for a week. If it didn't work out, I had the details of the kennels that the dog normally stayed in. It was the most wonderful time ever. And in fact, when I was really depressed, because the whole process of mourning is full of depression, I would phone them up and say, can I borrow your dog for the weekend? And they would say, sure. And in fact, now I lend my dog out to people, partly to do me a favour, but they're also thinking, do we want to have a dog? And the only way to know is to have a dog for the weekend. And 
that you're going to do a favour for somebody else as well. It's a sort of mini form of volunteering and it allows you to see what it would be really like and you immediately know if this is for you or it isn't for you. I found that I definitely did want a dog after that and it gave me the courage because it is a huge change in your life to have a, a dog for the first time. If you want to find out about my experiences with dogs, I've actually written a book called The Power of Dog, and it was about how getting a dog changed my life and helped me recover from my bereavement. And I believe you're going to put this in your Battersea Dogs Home book club. So thank you for that. There'll be details of that on the podcast information sheet. There'll also be all the details about what Charlotte does. And we'll continue with this in just a moment. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. If you join my supporters club, you get all sorts of benefits. You get the chance to hear what Charlotte finds to be true, really true, three particular things. And we're going to also talk about what we've both learned from today. And you get the chance to send in a letter. So Charlotte's going to give me her thoughts on this and let me give you the letter. I found my husband texting another woman from work while I was pregnant. When I confronted him, he denied his close relationship for months. He kept reassuring me nothing happened. Finally, one day he told me he dropped her off after work. Since then, I checked our phone bills, the records, and I found numerous texts and calls between them during and after work. I confronted both of them by phone. They were both apologetic. Also, the other woman said she would text and call people from work regardless of their marital status. She admitted to asking my husband to drop her off at the train station, but my husband insisted on dropping her off at her boyfriend's place. Later, my husband also admitted he fantasised and masturbated while thinking of her. My advice to all women is to stop your husband from texting and calling another woman before they get too close. Never believe your husband's reasons why he would text or call other women. Remind him that the affair does not start in bed. Any close friendship with the opposite sex is never good for your marriage. Stop them immediately. Charlotte, what did you think when you were reading that letter? I was really saddened by this letter and I felt so very sorry for the writer because when you're pregnant, you're very vulnerable. And I just, I just felt the betrayal of trust, really, that she believed a line had been crossed. And her last lines about you know, affair doesn't start in bed, is really impactful because I believe that emotional intimacy with somebody else is a betrayal if somebody was telling somebody else their closest thoughts and secrets and not, not the husband and wife. That would be really difficult to deal with. So I think that's sort of the arena that I was getting into. And she was... In a way, she was let down, I think, because she'd been fobbed off. You know, she was saying, I know something's going on. And it was like this confrontation and, and the denial. He reassured her that nothing was happened. But deep down, she knew something very different, didn't she? Yeah. And and how difficult is that? Because it's a, there's an element, I think, of like gaslighting somebody that could happen here is that 
the woman or the partner is saying, look, I know something's happening, I know something's happening. And a partner is saying, no, there's not, there's not. And you start to think, well, am I being stupid or am I imagining this? And he was sort of happy to say to her, nothing is happening until she had to sort of turn amateur detective and really confront them both with what she'd found out. That's a terrible thing to have to happen. It reminded me of Bill Clinton. Oh, yes. One of the comments that he's Monica Levinsky. Levinsky. He denied and denied and denied. And I think the famous line was, I did not have sex with that woman. And he got sex to be defined in a very narrow way. Exactly. Penetrative sex was sex, but you know, a blowjob in the Oval Office was not sex. How could anybody think that was not a sexual activity or not sex? But if we're talking about American presidents, Mm. Jimmy Carter once said that he'd cheated in his heart by thinking about another woman. So we get the other end of the scale. Thinking becomes cheating. Actually, I feel uncomfortable in both ends there. So I'm split on this letter because I agree with you 100%. And I don't think men really understand how vulnerable a woman feels when she's pregnant. The problem is, I don't think women understand how much men panic sometimes when their wife is pregnant. And you're not allowed to actually talk about your panic. And all of these feelings do not get expressed. And feelings that don't get expressed end up going in sort of very dark places, which is what's happening here. And it is really, really sad that they were not able to talk to each other about their feelings and what was actually going on during that time. She couldn't talk about her vulnerability because I think that is really difficult to talk about. And I don't think the man could talk about his fears either because those are very difficult to talk about. And what happens when people can't talk to each other? We've been talking about having a common project and a baby is a common project, but here it's actually got divided hasn't it it's become something that's divided them rather than brought them together i think you're you're absolutely right and i I also think that there is this myth that is perpetuated and the myth is that pregnancy is the best time of your life this is so wonderful you're having your baby and your life will change for the better now and i think we're back to the perfect birth as well exactly It is one of the most worrying times, especially first babies, because it's it's like Alice in Wonderland, isn't it? Going through the looking glass, you know, you you can never go back. And if the man is the, um, I don't want to, I don't want to make sweeping generalizations about who are the breadwinners or the, but say for example, in this relationship, the man was the highest earner, or his wife was going to take a career break, or he felt that, you know, how am I going to manage financially? Which is often the thing in my experience of talking to many female friends over the years, a lot of rows are about sex and money worry about how people are going to afford things we don't know what his worries were that's not covered in this letter we can guess that he was feeling a little bit panicked so what i would say to the person who's written this letter in is that all your feelings are okay you're perfectly at liberty to say all of these things and this is the very important thing because if you say one sentence then you put a but The most famous one is, I love you, but I'm not in love with you. The second half of the sentence becomes more important than the first half. So you have every right to have your feelings. And it's important to try and build bridges with your husband as well. 
I think there's some bridges that need to be built at the moment. Now, just because you're going to build bridges doesn't mean you have to agree with his behavior in any way, but it would be helpful to understand what's actually underneath all of this behavior. So ask him, what was it like coming up to the pregnancy? How was it for you? And listening to him and telling him how it was for you too. And really finding out what's been going on for both of you so the two of you can actually understand not just what he did, but why he did it. Because if you understand the why, you can actually find out what is the real cause and actually be able to solve it. Because the real cause is not just that work issues became personal issues, which is part of the problem, but there's a, an underlying thing right at the very bottom of this. And finding that out could actually begin to build bridges between the two of you. So at the moment, I think there's a lot of confrontation and that's fine. However, we also need to build some bridges as well. I hope that helps. You have our empathy, and I hope that things do get better between you and your partner. So, Charlotte, I invited you on this programme as a witness for what makes life meaningful. What does make your life meaningful? I gave this some real thought, Andrew, because... The opposite of meaningful is meaningless, isn't it? Is that is the things that you just do and you don't know why you're doing them and you just you're on sort of spin and rinse and repeat. And um, and I don't like to live a life that is just a repeat of yesterday. I, I'm inquisitive and I'm very curious about life and very interested in people and inspired by people. And sometimes I talk to people on trains. I'm not the weirdo on the bus, but if I if anybody wants a conversation, you sort of find those people, don't you? It's I think that's the the nature of the beast. So the three things that I think that give my life meaning, and they can be categorised one in terms of relationships. So I would say that it is the quality of the relationship that you have with the people around you, and that's not necessarily the people who are closest to you. It's the quality of the relationships that you have with passing strangers work colleagues work colleagues that are in there they're on, next on my list the lady who serves you in the shop it's just everybody who you come into contact with so it's caring about other people and it's also recognizing that you know it's not all about me 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 and what i want and what i want to do and that your concerns and needs and wants might not be the same as other people and, and most likely they're not going to be the same and in that quality of, of relationships around you is actually giving other people a voice. So if you say to somebody, how are you? Don't expect them just to say fine. If they actually tell you things that are difficult, that you've asked a question in a certain way that, you know, you have a responsibility to take that answer. And sometimes it might include some feedback that is constructive to you. So it's listening to people. And I suppose that if you are in pursuit of a meaningful life, then it must not be at the expense of somebody else's right to lead their life the way they want to do it. So you you have a sort of moral responsibility if you sort of decide that, well, I want to have a meaningful life, then you accept that other people do as well. And what if there's a clash? Because what makes my life meaningful is climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. And actually, that's a pain as far as you're concerned. Well, that's how 
bringing back to dogs, and it was a bit of a neat segue you provided there. My husband for years didn't want a dog. And it was only when we fostered one, because that was the first experience of having a dog, that he then said, well, his exact words were, he can't go back. So sometimes there will be a clash and you will never be able to reconcile that clash and, and being able to live with what is meaningful to you and what is meaningful to somebody else if that's a close relationship or a family relationship, then sometimes you have to accept that you might be a great believer in God and somebody else might not, or vice versa. And you have to live with other people's views and other people's life experiences, which make them as they are. So uh, quality of relationships is like right there for me in terms of meaningfulness, because if you don't sort your relationships out, you're going to be thinking about the relationships and then and then not doing the other things and then a a meaningful thing to me is personal growth is really wanting to be the best that I can possibly be and to do that I have to make peace with my faults and, and my weaknesses and I have to also understand and embrace what my vulnerabilities are and know them and I think that's really difficult isn't it and that's where the growth comes. Yeah, because the two are connected. But years ago, I was a really heavy smoker, like proper heavy, at a time when everyone was allowed to smoke in the office and you used to have ashtrays on the edge of your desk. And, you know, it's really horrible now when I think about it. But when I met my husband, he was not a smoker and he didn't like it. So I went to see a hypnotherapist and the hypnotherapist was really clear that it wasn't about smoke and mirrors or saying to me, you know, you're under my control. It was it was very much about you're going to enter a deep sense of relaxation. I will ask you some questions. You may remember some of those questions afterwards or you may not. And one of the questions that she asked me was, when was the first time that you ever felt bad about yourself? Actually, the, the question was around about when somebody made you feel bad. It was like the two things. And I gave this example from when I was seven years old that I had not remembered up until that point, but had clearly been in my unconscious, subconscious, whichever of those words is the right one to use. So personal growth, self-awareness, I think they help you lead a meaningful life. And the third one for me is being able to make a contribution to your community or your society. So not everybody has to go off and get a job working for a charity or become a volunteer or a you know a foster carer or but we all have it within our power to make a positive difference to the world around us and whether or not that was picking up a piece of litter or doing something that is good for somebody else without expectation that you're going to be repaid in any way at all that you do it to help somebody when you are working with animals or children the motivation is really there because the animals don't have a voice and often children don't have a voice or a vulnerable adult you can sort of see that direct line that i can help this person because they can't help themselves but sometimes there are you know there are people who can help themselves but something happens to them which makes them temporarily vulnerable or you know the person who 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 drop something and you're running along the road behind them saying you just dropped your hat or whatever it is it's that you do something and I read a eulogy no not a eulogy what they would like to have written on their grave is it an epitaph epitaph it is thank you for helping me out with that 
And the gist of it was that I left the kitchen tidier than I found it. <laughs> and I absolutely love that. They say that 100 years after you die, unless you were Winston Churchill or Nelson Mandela, or there will not be a single person alive who ever remembers you. You know, your footprint on on this earth is is temporary. It's like a footprint in the sand. The tide will come in and, and erase it. But you're not doing it as a legacy thing. You're not doing it to score points. You do it because it's what makes the world go round. You help somebody and that is a really good thing to do. Charlotte, thank you very much for sharing what makes your life meaningful. I have to admit that I will remember for somebody who left the kitchen messier than when I went into it. But that's quite a good epitaph as well. So this is the point where we say goodbye. There will be obviously the information about Charlotte's work and the various charities we've been talking about and ways of getting help if the subject of missing limbs is something that is important to you. We'll have that all on the fact sheet as well as details about the Battersea Dogs Home. Now, if you want to find out what the three things are that Charlotte knows to be true, deeply true, you can join our supporters club and get the various benefits. I do hope that you will think about doing that. If you'd like details, go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall forward slash podcast. And Charlotte, thank you very much for being my witness today on The Meaningful Life. It's been a real pleasure. I've enjoyed talking to you. And it's really good just to sort of examine how you think and how you feel. So thank you. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.